Tonight, the incredible story of one of Hollywood's legendary producers. Helping us tell that story is a Hollywood screenwriter who knew him. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our listeners from around the world and across the United States. We're happy to have you back with us again for some more incredible stories. If you happen to be joining us for the first time, well, welcome. Welcome to the party. Uh, There's refreshments in the refrigerator. Go ahead, grab yourself some snacks. And guess what? Uh, As a complimentary gift, uh, if you decide that you like this, we're going to treat you to a free episode every single Friday of Richard and Gary's Incredible Stories. And all you have to do is just hit that like and subscribe button and You'll be uh, treated to a whole bunch of wonderful stories, and it's free of charge. Don't worry about it. Go ahead, put put away your wallet. Uh, there's no cost here. Uh, that being said, uh, why don't we go ahead and get started with uh, our story for today? What's that going to be? Okay, we're going to be talking about a man by the name of Aaron Blum Wallowitz, who was born in 1898, lived to be 88 years old. And, of course, Gary, you probably don't recognize that name. Not, no, not right off the bat. Aaron Bloom Wallowitz. Well, he changed it to Harold Brent Wallace and later shortened it to Hal Wallace. And he became one of um, America's iconic motion picture producers, creating some of the uh, most fantastic films of the golden era of the studios. With us tonight is somebody who actually knew this man, knew him and actually stood in his presence. And so we're going to bring her in in just a moment or two. Let me set the stage. Hal Wallace, some of the movies that he produced, Gary, that you and I both like. Casablanca. Great movie. Oh, boy. Humphrey Bogart. Um, Maltese Falcon. Another good one. Good film noir. Yeah, Humphrey Bogart. If we want to go back to the 1930s, The Petrified Forest, starting, um, starring uh, Humphrey Bogart. And then uh, some other ones uh, that uh, not as many people might be familiar with. Are you familiar with The Adventures of Robin Hood? Of course I am. I love that movie. He produced Sergeant York, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he, uh, in March of 1944, he won the Academy Award for Best Picture at the 16th Academy Awards celebration. And uh, during the ceremony, when the award was announced for Casablanca, Hal Wallace got up to accept it. But the head of Warner Brothers, Jack L. Warner, one of the Warner Brothers, rushed up to the stage, and this is a quote from Hal Wallace, with a broad, flashing smile and a look of great self-satisfaction. And Wallace said, I couldn't believe it was happening. Casablanca had been my creation, Jack had absolutely nothing to do with it. As the audience gasped, I tried to get out of the row of seats and into the aisle, but the entire Warner family sat blocking me. Oh. I had no alternative but to sit down again, humiliated and furious. And almost 40 years later, I still hadn't recovered from the shock. And that incident would lead to Hal Wallace to leave Warner Brothers the next month and continue his career with his Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis movies and his Elvis movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with um, Paramount, I believe it was. So uh, tonight we have 
Hollywood screenwriter Esther Luttrell, who is going to go ahead and share a few of her personal stories and connected with her contact with Al Wallace. Welcome, Esther. Well, thank you. Thank you. What an honor to be here. And I didn't know some of the things you just said. That was interesting. Yes, uh, I had not um, heard that story until I was doing a little research for our podcast uh, this evening. But how in the world did you come across Hal Wallace? Well, I didn't. He he came across me. And that's what's so astounding. Because uh, he wasn't in in my frame of reference. (laughs) As I've told you, I I didn't think about it one way or other. I just assumed, because he comes from the old school, the old classic movies, I really didn't stop and think, oh, yeah, well, he also produced all of Elvis's pictures and all of Martin and Lewis's pictures. I just associated his, in my mind, with Barbara Sandwick and, and Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney. And I I guess I just assumed that he was dead. <laughs> and so when uh, I'd, uh, I hadn't been in Hollywood very long, and I got a call one day, and a woman said, uh, is this, at that time, my name was Beardsley, Esther Beardsley. And she said, is this Esther Beardsley? And I said, yes. And she said, hold the phone, please, for Hal Wallace. And I thought, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't right. know that many people, but I figured somebody had a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And this man comes on the phone and said, uh, Esther, Hal Wallace here. Just read something you wrote. I'd like to talk to you. And I said, really, how, how well is? And he said, yes, really. And I said, oh, oh my goodness. Oh, and I know he must have thought, uh, who ghosted this for you? Because the lady on the surely didn't write what I read. I really sounded so terribly stupid. Anyway, uh, I, I said, uh, I said, yes, uh, I'd love to see you. So you want to see me something like four o'clock? Well, I had, just started working on Chips, the TV show Chips, as a production coordinator. And uh, my boss was Don Gold, and I I didn't know him very well. He did become my writing partner later, but I didn't know him very well then. I, but I know that he was born in Hollywood. He told me that. He told me he had all kinds of Hollywood stories. And Hollywood was his life. He started to work at Universal when he was 17. He'd worked on everything that you can think of. I loved hearing his stories. So I went into his office and I told him about the phone call. And I said, and he wants to see me at four o'clock today. And he said, well, what are you doing standing here? Get out of here. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I'd been given an address on Sunset Boulevard, a, a high rise, a big tower there. And uh, so I drove over and I couldn't find a parking place. I had to park two or three blocks away. Well, then I had to turn around and I had to, you know, go back. Women, we hate having to walk that far because our hair's going to get messed up. Anyway, <laughs> oh, stupid, frivolous me. I went and he's in the penthouse apartment, not apartment, but office, his penthouse office. And I went into this little reception area and there to my right was a, an older sort of a Della Street lady. And I said, hi, I'm Esther and I'm here to see Mr. Wallace. And she said, well, my dear, I'm afraid he won't be seeing you. And I said, why? And she said, well, you're late. And he makes it a habit not to see people who are late. I said, oh, 
oh no, oh I'm so sorry. The traffic really was bad and I had to park a long way off. Oh please, just just tell him I'm here. Would you do that? Just tell him I'm here. And she said, well I'll tell him you're here, but no, he won't see you. So she goes in and comes out a moment later and stands at the door and she smiles so sweet. She said, Mr. Wallace would like to see you. Oh what? So I go inside and you're at the far end of this room that seemed to go on forever and had deep carpeting. Well, at the end of this long room was a rise that went across the entire end of the room. Behind that was floor to ceiling, wall to wall glass, which meant that the person sitting at this gigantic desk on the rise was backlit so that he had a halo around his entire body. And because he's on the rise, and because he's backlit, you know, he looks bigger than a giant. <laughs> and he did not look up. He had something in his hands that he was reading, had his arms on his desk, had paper in his hands, that he just kept right on reading. Now, I had to cross from that door, one end of the room, cross that deep carpeting, and I was not make buck teeth. I was the most, oh my gosh, intimidated <laughs> little little girl you'd ever seen. And he didn't make it any easier. So you get to the end, now you step up on the rise like you're going to see the king on the throne. <laughs> and then I stood in front of his desk looking down at his mostly bald head. Didn't say a thing. I stood there. I didn't say a thing. Finally, without looking at me, he said, I guess you're going to tell me the traffic is bad, huh? And I said, no, sir, just damn poor planning on my part. And he looked up at me and he said, you're honest. Well, you're a strange bird for Hollywood. Sit down. <laughs> and that just, that just did it. That, that we just had the kind of easy rapport him definitely the leader. It wasn't a peer situation at all. I just adored him from him looking up and being so candid with me. Yeah. You know, I loved him. Uh, he loved telling his stories. I loved listening to his stories. But he said, my goal is to find a screenplay. And young lady, I read what you wrote. You're a fantastic. I said, how, how did you read what I wrote? He said, we have a mutual friend. We'll let it go with that. It turned out it was Dick Clark had given it to him. But anyway, uh, we just had this great rapport. And he wanted me to find him. He didn't hire me to write, you'll notice. He didn't say write me a script. He said find me a script. Right. And I took that as, as oh, gosh, the most fabulous assignment ever. And, you know, he never paid me. I never got a penny. Well, I, oh, I never wow. even thought about it. I never thought about it. Never thought about money. I was just so honored that this man trusted me so much. Mm -hmm. And and it seemed like when he just wanted to talk to somebody who'd listen, he'd call me. And, of course, you know, here's I had my wonderful boss, Don Goldie. Go on, go on, get out here, go on. So I was I was able to run over every time he said, uh, got a few minutes? <laughs> yes, sir. Did you ever arrive late again? Never. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, never. <laughs> Even if it meant sending out in his reception room for a few minutes, I uh, never was late again. 
one of the, <laughs> one of the things he told you in those stories, uh, for whatever reason, uh, your conversation got around to favorite films that he had produced, and here, this is the man who did Casablanca, Esther. This is the man who did Fal uh, Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart, and this is the man who did The Petrified Forest, and he told you that something else was his favorite movie. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the first things I said to him was, uh, as I go out looking for a story for you, I know everything, you know, you've done so many that were so fabulous. You know, he was nominated 16 times for the Academy Award, but he only got it the one time for Casablanca. But I said, of all the films you've done, what's the one you're proudest of? And he said, Anne of a Thousand Days. And I was shocked because that wasn't even in my mind. I mean, I didn't even stop to think that he did that. It was not a film I had even seen. And uh, I asked him why. And I don't remember the first part of his comment, but I remember the end of it. Because I said, so you want me to find something that you can be as proud of as Anna of a Thousand Days? And he said, that'd, that'd be the ideal. And I said, all right, let me put it this way. What movie has come out in recent times that you wish you had produced? And he said, Chariots of Fire. Oh, oh wow. That's a good one. That is a good movie. And I said, that's more helpful. I don't think I'm going to find an Anne of a Thousand Days. I might find a Chariots of Fire somewhere. But um, what else did you want? Oh, you want to talk about Casablanca? Casablanca. Uh, somewhere. Uh, yes, and by the way, well, Anne of a Thousand Days, you remember? That starred Richard Burton, one of my favorite actors. Oh, I immediately, I immediately went to a video store. Remember, we had video stores in those days. Oh, I, I miss video and stores. I, I, oh, what are video stores? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Esther, but, oh what, my goodness! What are yeah. video stores? Yeah, what are video stores? <laughs> well, they used to have these uh, videos that we could rent and take home. <laughs> and so I immediately went to a video store and got Anna of a Thousand Days, and I saw why he was so proud of it. I love that movie. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. <laughs> oh, you've got to. Oh, you've got to. It, it's so good. Uh, yeah, that is something you'd carry with you the rest of your life if you produce that. Casablanca, uh, we didn't talk a lot about it. There was, a, they had a couple of directors on it. Ingrid Bergman uh, was always confused uh, by it because it had two endings. Uh, one is she stayed with Rick, and the other is she left Rick. Right. And she she said to the director, uh, "I I don't know how to play this. Do I love Rick, or or do I accept that we're leaving and I'm going with my husband because I love him?" And the director really didn't help her. He said, "You play it how you feel it." And so she was always confused by the ending. And they, they shot two endings. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, we went with the one that we all know so well now. Yeah. Um, I didn't hear a lot of stories about that other than confusion on the set. That was filmed entirely on MGM's back lot, by the way. I think oh, people wow. think it was filmed on Warner Brothers' back lot. But I don't know if I believe the stories I was told, it was done in James Blackwood. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite film that he had done, and it was a family tradition uh, when I got married and had kids every 4th of July, we'd watch Yankee Doodle Dandy. 
And I still love that movie. I think it's one of the most relevant movies and has one of the best messages. So I said, I didn't talk that much to Hal Wallace, but I said, I loved Yankee Doodle Dandy. He said, well, I didn't. <laughs> I said, really? He said, I stand that little son of a gun. I'm cleaning up the language. Uh, James Cagney. <laughs> and I said, really? He said, well, it wasn't Cagney so much as it was his brother. His brother ran everything, you know. He was his manager. Hard oh. to deal with. Unreasonable man. I <laughs> like either one of them. He just got through it. <laughs> and so <laughs> I got all these little tidbits, you know. Yeah. Uh, he never talked about the Elvis pictures, and he never talked about uh, Martin and Lewis. Mainly, he just talked about what he wanted to do. And we talked about scripts that I would find and stories that I would find and we would talk about. I did find one and I, I learned a horrible lesson from it. I, I, people were always sending me scripts, always. I had nothing to do with my job. It just, I took a cab one time to MGM and when we got there and the driver said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I just help find scripts. I swear to you, he reached under the seat and pulled out a script and said, oh, would you read mine? Wow. <laughs> I had somebody build me a treehouse for my little boy, and the day I paid him, he said something about, um, where do you work? And I said, I work at MGM. And he said, oh, would you read my screenplay? So, And that led to a fascinating story. But anyway, people were always handing me their scripts. So for, I don't remember how I found it, but an older man, I think he was in his 80s, had written a story about World War II, and it was so good that I called the man and I said, I can't tell you who I represent, but I just want you to know that I love your script. And this gentleman is a producer of some reputation, and he's looking for a story and I believe it's a story like yours. And I just want you to know, because I figured if you're 80 and you've never sold anything, you've been down that road so many times. You've been hurt so many times. I wanted to give him the good news. I wanted to give him hope because it was beautifully written. And how, how well is it didn't care if you'd ever written or sold anything else. He wanted that one story and he depended on me to find it. So I told the man that and and I took Mr. Wallace the story and he agreed and then the awful thing happened the man called me at home that wrote it and he was very depressed and he began to tell me the times he'd come so close and nothing had ever happened and he'd given up hope and he'd written actually written that story many years before but just felt like he wanted me to look at it and see if I saw any merit in it so when I told him that the actual producer, I was going to be showing it to a producer who could actually buy it, he was just overwhelmed. And he said, can't you please give me a hint who it is? This is, this is the closest thing I've had to believe in in so many years. And I said, oh, dear, I know better than tell you this, but the producer is Hal Wallace. And he cried. And I said, please, please, don't tell anyone. I had no business telling you that. And, of course, that was horrible of me because Hal Wallace had asked me not to reveal who was searching. Well, 
the man had a few drinks one night, oh. found Ty Wallace's number and called him drunk. Mm. Oh. And, yeah, and said, I know nothing's going to come of this. I've been on this road before. And I was, oh, my gosh, I can't tell you how devastated. Mm. I was so mad at me. I had broken a trust. Yeah, yeah. And, but how Wallace was it mad at me? That's okay. I was mad at me enough for the two of us. But he didn't want anything to do with the writer or the story after okay. that. Mm-hmm. Sure. But, uh, and then right after that, Mr. Wallace had a terrible automobile accident and um, almost died. was not conscious for, I don't remember how many days. And then Marge, his secretary, called me and said, Mr. Wallace gained consciousness this morning. And the first thing he said to me was, get Esther on the phone for me. And he said that before he said anything else. And I said, Marge, I know it isn't because he's wanting to hear my voice. He's wanting me to assure him that we're going to find that story. And she said, you're right. And I said, you tell him we're going to find that story. And that was that. I, I never, he died. Mm-hmm. He didn't die from the automobile accident, although I think it was, that certainly, uh, He's, he was never well after that, and I never saw him again. Yeah, he, he passed away uh, about two weeks uh, short of his 88th birthday, 1986. But he still, I'm telling you, he wasn't wrinkled. He had no wrinkles. He had a strong voice. He was, uh, gosh, I know he wasn't 6'6", but that's the image he projected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think he was that tall at all. Uh, just a normal height, but Everything about him, his energy, everything about him was just big and in charge, but not, certainly in my experiences, not in a bullying way. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he had patience with a phony. I think they would be made short work of. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I just loved him, and I'm so sorry that, I'm so sorry I betrayed him. It's been all these years, and I'm still mad at myself. Well, you if, know. if you're given a trust, don't break it. Right. Don't break yeah. it. But again, you had compassion for this uh, other individual, and so there was nothing uh, malicious. Uh, my, in yeah, your but my allegiance wasn't to that individual. Yeah. My allegiance was well, to Hal Wallace. One of the people who paid allegiance to Hal Wallace was uh, an actor who appeared in some of his early films like santa fe trail and this is the army back in the 1940s for that one. Oh wow well, you're sure naming some childhood and, memories there yeah <laughs> and so the actor who appeared in those uh films ended up becoming president of the united states and he sent his condolences yeah. to the wallace family that was ronald reagan yeah 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 do you have some how wallace stories do i have how wallace stories yeah uh, Vulcan, for instance, you said you like that so much. Okay, I tell you what, um, I've got one last one. Did you know that in the 1930s he actually was investing in residential real estate? Yes, I did know that. He in, did tell me that. in Sherman Oaks, and you're familiar where Sherman Oaks is. That's a mm-hmm. pretty mm-hmm. exclusive area. And he named Hal Brent Avenue after himself. He used his nickname. <laughs> yeah. And and his middle name, I know that, but I, <laughs> yeah. And his middle name Brent, which is also the name he gave to his son, who later became a psychiatrist. 
So Halbrent Avenue uh, was named after him, his son. And Esther, most of those original homes are still there. And it's very close to Ventura and Sepulveda Boulevards. Yeah, I lived in Studio City. And uh, and when I think of that area, I mainly think of Saks Fifth Avenue. I don't know how it looks today. I probably would not want to see it today. Mm-hmm. I mean, just L.A. in general. Yeah. But I think of it as a, as a wonderful uh, upscale place to shop and, and to eat. And uh, so the homes they run into in Sino, you go down Ventura Boulevard, as you probably know, uh, one little city, studio city, becomes Encino. Encino becomes, uh, you know, it just goes on and on. You're just driving in one street. You leave one city and you're in the, the next one. I'm going to wrap it up with uh, maybe one suggestion to you. The next time okay. you're in Hollywood, don't count on finding a parking space right away. <laughs> I don't plan to be back in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, would you like to end it on, on a piece of advice yes. Mr. Uh, Wallace gave me one time? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Because it's it's, uh, it's so wise, and it's an insight into what's happened to the industry. He said, uh, in my search for film, he said, we have to be very careful. Because if you try to make an excellent film... You're appealing to a discriminating audience, and they're going to demand that the lighting, the music, the acting, the sound, that everything meets their standard. Esther, unfortunately, there's always an audience for junk. Always (laughs) will be. They're not discriminating. You can have crazy music. You can have bad acting. You can have terrible sound. And there'll always be an audience for junk because they don't have anybody on their dance card. Mm-hmm. They'll go to the movies. And, and that, you know, wow. is, is one of our core beliefs, too, yeah. that uh, there's not a good movie unless it has a good story. Isn't that true? But uh, he's right. When we have a good story... It has to be told well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I even get picky about the lighting, and I get picky about the sound. And I don't like the bleached hair and a picture that's taking place in the 1800s and the false eyelashes. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. we are discriminating. We are. He's right. He's right. Mm-hmm. That's so There's true. There's always an audience for junk. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'd rather have two people listen to something I believe in than have a million listen to something I'm ashamed of but did. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah. Esther, we are so privileged to have had you on our podcast this evening, and I know our listeners have thoroughly enjoyed our little uh, behind-the-scenes peek at one of Hollywood's okay. iconic producers. And hopefully you're going to come back uh, and talk to us uh, down the road about uh, your work at MGM. Well, your darling. <laughs> <laughs> Esther, thank you so much. Yes, once thank again. you again. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary, and we really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And well, I know you did. I'm sure they did. And we hope that you'll join us again for more incredible stories, and that'll be every Friday. We'll see you then. <laughs>